Welcome to the Semper Reformatic Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Acts chapter 22, and we're reading from verse 21. And we're really breaking into where we left off last week, where Paul has given a defense of the faith. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And they, the Jews, gave him audience unto this word, and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw them into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? And he said, Yea. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was freeborn. Then straightway they departed from him which should have examined him. And the chief captain also was afraid, after he knew that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty, Wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So last week we left Paul standing on the steps leading up into the Roman fort at the, at the corner of the temple court. If you remember, over the past two or three weeks, we noticed that his defence had taken place in four stages. He had started off by giving a word of testimony, as we would say, speaking about his undoubted, indisputable Jewish background and pedigree and his then conversion to Christ on the Damascus Road. He'd introduced then a credible witness. And he had talked about his time of prayer that he had in the temple at Jerusalem. It's when he talks about that incident that occurred in the temple, which we didn't get time to deal with last week. It's when he begins to talk about that, and when he says these words... He said unto me, God said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. 
It's when he utters that last sentence that the mob is so incensed that they literally bay for his blood. Of course, he's talking to the crowd in Aramaic or Hebrew, probably Aramaic. So we're going to look at the narrative and the, the whole sense of drama that there is in this text, in this passage. But first, let's ask a reasonable question. And it was a question that we finished with last week. Why do people hate Christians so much that in some cases they actually want rid of them? They want them dead. It's no surprise. In John 15, verse 17, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, says these words. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Up till now, in the temple court at Jerusalem, Paul's enemies have been silent. But as his testimony reaches its culmination, what he has just said utterly enrages the Jews and they literally want him dead. Verse 22 says, And they gave him audience unto this word. And they had lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. Now why did they hate Paul so much that they did not think that he was fit to live on this earth. Why has it been from that time to this that there are people who absolutely hate Christianity and hate Christ so much that they think the world should be expunged of it? Even today, the sheer hatred of some people for Christ and his disciples is truly shocking. There are people out there in the world who still think like those early Jews. Now, when I left school, I just turned 17. I went to the roughest school in Belfast. Couldn't have been any worse. And it's now closed, thankfully, which was a great blessing to all of humanity. I didn't much like school. And uh, when I got to 16, I told my mother and father I was leaving. And my mother and father had a conversation about it. And my father said to my mother, never worry a thing about it, love. Who's going to give him a job? He's totally useless. He can't do anything. <laughs> so my mother said, that's all right then. He'll have to go back to school. But I proved them wrong. And I went out and got a job as an apprentice butcher. It was the job in the whole world that I was less, least suited for. Couldn't stand the, the meat. Couldn't put my hands into it. You know, it's all slimy and cold when it comes out of the fridge. I couldn't actually put my hands into the meat. 
And I was supposed to serve this to people. But I saw being an apprentice butcher in a shop in Bangor as a wonderful opportunity to witness. I just become a Christian when I was 16. Must have been about six months before this happened, before I got this job. And I was still brimming over with enthusiasm for the faith and for the Lord. And so here's the kind of thing would happen. Some wee woman in Bangor would come in. And you know, Bangor people are very posh. And they would come up to the counter. This wee woman would come up to the counter and she would say to me, could I have a, a half a pound of bacon cut very thin, please? I'd make it last, you see. And I would say, yes, madam. And I would get her the bacon off the bacon slicer, whatever it was, and I would put it into the wee bit of paper and I'd show it to her and I'd, is this all right for you, madam? Oh yes, that will do, lovely. And that'll be, I think, maybe a three and six in those days. And I would wrap it up and I'd say, that'll be three and six. Now, madam, have you ever thought where you'll be in eternity? I got the sack. Yes, I've been fired with enthusiasm from many jobs. I got the sack after a while. and um, But there was one man, my boss was always complaining about my clumsy efforts at evangelism, but there was one man who would, who would have been in very often. And he discovered that I was a Christian. And he would come into the butcher's shop and he would stand in the line of customers and he would get up to the counter and he would do the opposite on me. He would start on me over the counter. And maybe on a Friday afternoon, and this is in the days before all the big supermarkets, maybe on a Friday afternoon when there's a queue out of the shop and the butcher, he's getting really cross about this. And I'm starting having a row with this man. And he would be complaining about all the harm that Christianity has ever done in the world. He would blame Christianity for all the wars and all the sectarianism and all the people named, killed in the name of religion. That man, whoever he was, had an absolute hatred of Christianity. And he loved coming into the shop so he could have a go at me. Of course, I had a go right back at him. You think of the good that Christianity has done in this world. Think how Christians have made an impact on society. Think how Christianity has impacted education and social reform and medicine and democracy and the arts and, of course, language. The authorised version of the Bible has once been called the most important book in the English language and culture, the most celebrated book in the English-speaking world. One commentator said, No single group in human history has contributed more to education than Christians have. No group in human history has contributed more to health care than Christians have. Christians, more than anyone else, have contributed to the welfare and the protection of children. No other group in human history has fought the slave trade harder than Christians have. No other single group in human history has contributed more to the cause of charity than Christians have. 
So just compare nations where Christianity has influenced society with cultures where, for example, Islam has been the main influence. No art, no industry, no compassion, no human rights, no medical aid. And yet they still hate Christianity, Christians, Christ, the gospel. Let's go back to our passage for a moment. Look at verse 21. Verse where it says, Depart from me, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow. There's great drama in those verses, isn't there? Look, for example, at how these Jews would have expressed their rage. Look at verse 23. As they cried out, they cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air. They tore off their outer garments, their coats. They shouted, they waved their fists, they lifted sand off the ground and they threw it up into the air. This was an eastern crowd and their reaction is far from restrained. These Jews have already beaten Paul. And now they're literally screaming for his blood. Now what was so offensive? What had Paul said to make them do that? Just one thing. It's a scandal. And it's called grace. Let me explain. The Jews would have no problem with Paul offering the message of repentance and entry into the covenant promises of God to Gentiles. Not at all. Every every single synagogue in the Gentile world had its God-fearers, its cadre of Greeks, who were fed up with the excesses and the licentiousness of secular Greek society. They were in the synagogue. They were seeking to learn more about God and about the God of Israel, about his wonderful deliverance of his own people when they were still slaves. Some of those God-fearers would have become proselytes. They would accept the Jewish faith. They would turn from their wickedness. They would seek to follow the Jewish law. They would indicate that by submitting to the sign of the covenant. They would submit themselves if they were men to circumcision and when that happened when they were circumcised they would be heartily welcomed into the local Jewish community to all extent to intents and purposes they were now Jews there's no problem there at all but what really raised the Jews is not the message of the law Not the message that you can attempt to keep the law and thus earn your justification. It's not the message that you can become one of them entering into the promises of God through works. That's not a problem. The problem is 
that you can come to God without works, through grace. And Paul is teaching these Gentiles exactly that. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, he says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What's so offensive to the world, and what's so offensive to these Jews, and what's making them think that Christians have no place on this earth, is that Paul is teaching the Gentiles that he's been called to, and that he's been traveling around, and that he's been preaching to. He's teaching them that Jesus has fulfilled the law for them that they are free from the law, that all the guilt and condemnation of the law has been taken by Christ at the cross, and they have complete forgiveness and new life in Christ. And worse still, in order to have that wonderful forgiveness, you don't have to do anything at all. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to go through a Jewish ritual. All you have to do is to come like the sinner, the publican in the temple, recognizing your sin. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right away, your sins are pardoned. Christ hath died so that you may live. Listen to what Paul taught in Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? Romans chapter 4 and verse 11. And he, that's Abraham, received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Abraham, these Jews looked upon Abraham as their father. Paul's saying, but, but Abraham received the promises of God before he was circumcised. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Galatians 6 and verse 15. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor the uncircumcision, but a new creature. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, 
but the keeping of the commandments of God. Philippians 3 and 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and have no confidence in the flesh. You know, the cutting off of a piece of flesh doesn't save you. It's what happens in your heart and the Holy Spirit regenerates you. Colossians 3 and verse 11 where there is neither Jew nor Greek nor Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying to the Jews constantly, outward religion is pointless religion. Circumcision is in our hearts. Romans chapter 2 and verse 28. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter. Whose praise is not of men but of God. And if you want to know what makes it, the Jews angry on that day. It's that simple thing. It's grace. It's the fact that God saves without works. And that's still the problem. Because I think even today, even in 2021, the ungodly world still rejects the concept of grace. It's found in no other religion. Every other religion is about what you do. Christianity is different. And it's what makes it so awkward for people. Because it's not about what you do, it's about what Christ has done. You see, people like Christians, okay. If Christianity could just confine itself to the betterment of mankind, which we believe in, we do believe and over the centuries, Christians have worked for the betterment of mankind. But if we would just stick with that, the social gospel would be fine. Churches that are promoting critical race theory, that's fine. Christians that are celebrating so-called gay marriages in their building, that's fine. But if you tell them that they need to have a new heart, if you tell them that they must repent of their sins, that they're sinners by nature and practice, and tell them that they need to turn from their sin and repent and trust Christ and be born again and be rescued by their sin, by God's unearned grace through faith alone, they will go off and in, into an irrational rage. Don't tell me that I'm a sinner. Don't tell me that I can't save myself. Don't tell me that I need a savior. Don't want to hear it. And I still think that one of the reasons why people dislike biblical Christianity so much is grace. Look at verse 24. 
because we have to move on. And let's go back to the drama of the occasion for a moment because Paul is still standing on the steps to the castle. And he's now being watched over by a centurion. And the chief commander, the chief captain, commands him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. Now let's think about this. Let's put ourselves into the position of this Roman soldier. What's he seeing? This troublemaker has been permitted to speak and he speaks in a language that the centurion doesn't understand. He maybe picks up a few words and he sees the Jewish mob and they're standing quietly and they're listening as the man speaks and then they see this massive eruption of anger, sheer unbridled hatred. What has this man said to cause such a reaction? The soldier needs to find out. Roman authorities, you see, don't tolerate riots and behaviour like that. And a report would need to be written. And he'll be asked the cause of the uproar. And the law has a way to deal with men like this. They would simply, in Roman days, torture you under tor- torture you until you confessed. So the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle be it that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. He'd be beaten with a whip, a special kind of whip, the same kind of whip that they used to scourge the Lord Jesus. A hideous whip, a leather thong with pieces of sharp bone and metal inserted into the, the whip. When a man was beaten with that thing, it literally tore the flesh off his back. And many men were left mentally scarred after such a hiding, left as physical and mental wrecks. And many died during the scourging. So Paul is taken down to the barracks and he's lashed down to a chair, a device to bear his back. He's tied there with thongs. Um, You can see in verse 25 that as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion that stood nearby, there's a centurion watching this to make sure it's done properly. Now let's think about this. Paul is about to be lashed to the point of death. And what he does is he avoids it by saying, I'm a Roman citizen. I want to think for a minute about martyrdom. Um, We've already said that Christianity is hated across the world. And certainly there's persecution Across the world and Christians very bravely sometimes face death, face martyrdom in Muslim nations, in African nations, North Korea, China, Nigeria, Afghanistan. How should a Christian face martyrdom? 
few weeks ago, I did a podcast and I gave you a CD of Ignatius of Antioch who wrote to churches on his way to Rome to face martyrdom. At the church in Rome, there were some very, very influential Christians, people who could perhaps even have quietly spoken up for Ignatius, maybe helped his cause, but on his way to Rome, Ignatius wrote a letter to the Roman church asking them not to intervene, pleading with them not to intervene and to help him. He wrote, For neither shall I ever have another opportunity of attaining to God, nor will you, if you shall now be silent. Ever be entitled to the honour of a better work. For if you are silent concerning me, I shall become God's. If you show your love to my flesh, I shall again have to run my race. Pray then, do not seek to confer any greater favour upon me that I be, than that I be sacrificed to God while this altar is still prepared. Ignatius sought martyrdom. Paul didn't. He could have died that day for Christ. But you see, why would we deliberately put ourselves in danger like Ignatius was doing? When Paul wrote to Rome in Romans 12 and verse 17, he said, Recompense to no man evil for evil. If it be as possible if it be possible, verse 18, as much as lieth in you, live peacefully with all men. I don't think for one minute we're to stand up in the street and deliberately attract attention and shout, I'm a Christian, come and arrest me. Hope I haven't said something wrong there. We're not to seek martyrdom. We're not to deliberately go out to seek martyrdom. Let's go back to Paul. He's about to suffer and die for Christ, and it would be awful. But it would surely prove that he was being honest. If he, if he, if he died right now on that whipping chair, it would at least prove that he was being honest when he later wrote to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wouldn't he welcome this opportunity to suffer for the Lord? But Paul has a wider view, maybe a more appropriate view, maybe a more biblical and God-honoring view than what Ignatius has. For look what happens next in verse twenty, in chapter 22 and verse 25. As they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Paul avoided the dreadful whip. He avoided the certain death it would bring by appealing to his Roman citizenship. Now, martyrdom for Paul may well eventually come. If it's going to come, it'll come at Rome. And if it does come, Paul will face it with faith, and he'd look to Christ as Saviour. For when he wrote to Timothy, he 
said that he had run his race, he had fought the good fight. There was a crown of righteousness led up for him in glory. He was looking forward to that. But this is not the time. There's more to do. Turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 1 in your Bible, and we'll conclude with a reading of Paul's view here. He wrote Philippians after this this particular event. This is a, Philippians is a later letter. So Philippians chapter 1 and verse 22. And Twenty-one. Let's start from 21. Imagine him thinking this way when he's on that whipping chair. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I choose, I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two. A desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Paul knows the law, the Roman law. For a Roman citizen to be strapped down um, and to be beaten without a trial, just to be strapped down was a minor infringement. For a Roman to be actually flogged and whipped without a trial is a major contravention of the Lex Romana. And that would mean execution for the soldier and the centurion and the officer who ordered it. Paul knows the law and he's released. And the captain reports to the commander and another decision is made. Look at verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. The Roman officer summons the men of the Sanhedrin and he puts Paul in front of them and he's going to investigate the cause of the riot. And next week, God willing, we'll find Paul in the midst of his fellow countrymen, the men who had commissioned him to go out and persecute Christians. And we'll see what happens. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.